Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I just wanted to put this on your radar screen. April Cease, over on the, uh, the staff of Daily Kos, has just written this blockbuster piece, and we'll be, uh, we're actually going to have a guest at the bottom of the hour about uh, climate change here. But this is just amazing. I'll just share part of it with you. Senator Shelley Caputo, or Capito, I think it's Shelley Moore Capito, as I recall, who has netted nearly $1 million from oil and gas and coal mining industry donations since taking office, introduced a bill to prevent President Biden from declaring climate change an emergency. Think about that for a minute. The president has the power to declare emergencies. He can declare a public health emergency. He can, he can declare pretty much any kind of emergency he wants. And she has introduced legislation, this, this, this senator, who has taken over a million dollars from the fossil fuel industry, introduced legislation called the Real Emergencies Act that attempts to, quote, clarify the inability of the president to declare national emergencies under the National Emergencies Act. Now, the National Emergencies Act allows the president to declare a national emergency and to have, you know, some particular new powers. And she's proposing legislation that would carve out climate change from that so that the president can't do anything about climate change. A woman, Shelley Moore Caputo, who took over a million dollars in the fossil fuel industry. She was joined in this effort by Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, who has taken more than three quarters of a million dollars from the fossil fuel industry. They were joined by North Dakota Senator Kevin Kramer, who is a climate change denier and has received more than $1 million in donations in the oil and gas sector. They're joined by Wyoming Senator Cynthia Loomis, who cleared more than a half million dollars from the fossil fuel companies. And they're also joined by Arkansas Senator John Boozman. These are all Republicans, by the way, of course. Arkansas Senator John Boozman, who is one of 22 Republicans who signed a letter to Donald Trump urging him to abandon the Paris Agreement, which he did. And Boozman has taken over a quarter of a million dollars from the fossil fuel companies. Then you've got Roger Wicker of Mississippi, 
John Barrasso of Wyoming and John Cornyn of Texas, all Republican senators. Cumulatively, these three senators have made more than $3.6 million from the fossil fuel industry. By the way, think about that for a minute. Each one of these senators that I've named so far is taking, you know, from a quarter million to a million or two million dollars, uh, you know, from the fossil fuel industry. If you're ExxonMobil or Coke Industries or, you know, uh, Chevron or whatever, if you're in the fossil fuel business, and we're talking here about the ability to make hundreds of billions of dollars, the fossil fuel industry last year in the United States, um, I don't recall the number, but it's over $30 billion in profits. It, it, they mentioned it on NPR this morning, it just kind of slid by me, but it was under 100 and well over $30 billion. Massive profits last year in the fossil fuel industry. So if you're looking at even $1 billion a year in, in profits, and you peel off one million of that, right, that's not even 1%. If I'm doing the math in my head right, I think that would take $10 million, right? $10 million would be 1%, $100 million would be 10%. Yeah, right. So even $1 million, one-tenth of 1%, you peel it off and you give it to a senator, and boom, they vote in a way that makes you more billions. Then those guys were joined by Senators Rick Scott of Florida, Senator John Hoven of North Dakota, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, and, Senator, and, and Langford of Oklahoma. I think I already mentioned Langford. The combination of these people is 2.8 million. Now, they also, there was also a bill sponsored in the House of Representatives by David McKinley of West Virginia, along with 10 co-sponsors. McKinley has raked in over a million dollars from the fossil fuel industry. This is called investment. Buying politicians is the single most profitable investment that you can make in America right now. And it's something that you can only do if you're a giant corporation or a, a billionaire, buying politicians. It's just, it's just astonishing. Anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls here. Nancy in Chewila, Washington. Chewila. Chewila. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I'm worried about these refugees that are pouring into Hungary and Poland from Ukraine. Because, I mean, a lot of countries are going authoritarian, but they are getting worse and worse. And Hungary, I could see them flipping to Russia if Russia uh, wins Ukraine and they wind up on uh, their doorstep. Yeah. And so I'm worried about these and Orban going has been, from the frying pan to the fire. Yeah, Orban has been sucking up to Putin for years. I mean, you know, Putin has been yeah. one of his major allies. And, and Orban, I mean, Hungary is technically a democracy. But Orban controls the judiciary. He has rigged the election system through, you know, the Hungarian version of, of uh, what you would call gerrymandering here in the United States. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's created this machine that you just can't stop. And, and the, all of the media in Hungary, uh, you know, with the exception of a few small, you know, obscure Internet sites, is owned now by or Orban's cronies. He, he, has, he has successfully turned Hungary into an oligarchy. It's no longer a democracy. And Duda is trying to do the same thing in Poland, by the way. Yeah, because I don't trust how nice they're being to them. You know, the government yeah. is being to these guys. It might be like just saying, yeah, come on in. And then once they're in, you know, start messing with them. Yeah. 
I, you know, this is this is a problem, Nancy, and it's going to be a big problem for Europe on an ongoing basis. And Putin knows that. And I think he's loving it because when a country has immigration that uh, causes that country to actually experience uh, pressure from that immigration, you know, the competition for jobs or, or driving up housing prices. Um, you yeah, know, they get backlash. They, you absolutely get backlash. And and Orban came to power back back in the day, and I, I forget the year, but it was in you know in the early 2000s. He came to power based on his promise to stop Syrian refugees who were the you know who were fleeing Syria as a result of Putin's bombing. His his whole shtick was build a wall. He was the original build the wall guy. This is long before Donald Trump was even promoting his birther conspiracies, which is what got Donald Trump so, you know, high profile in the, in the GOP. Um, Orban, and, and he said, I'm going to build a wall across the southern part of Hungary to prevent these refugees who are coming up, you know, coming up from, from Syria. And he did. He actually built the wall. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it got him elected in, in Hungary. He, you know, in fact, his party, there was a big demonstration where they marched with torches down to the neighborhood in Budapest where the Roma live, you know, the people that are typically have historically been called gypsies, although that's become a slur nowadays, um, uh, and they prefer to be called the Roma, so, you know, let's call them that. Uh, but they marched down to where, into this Roma neighborhood with these torches. I mean, hundreds of, of right-wing men chanting, we will burn you out. And, you know, they didn't burn, they didn't catch anybody's, any houses on fire, but after that you saw you know, Roma people scattering. I mean, it was just, it, and, and this is this is what Orban has been doing. And, and it's a, frankly, I think it's a script that the Republican Party is following. And because and it, it, it works so well for him. And Putin did the same thing. Putin, ta- you know, talks about white nationalism all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is the new thing on the hard right. And you get ready, because it's coming to a town near you. Nancy, thank you for the call. Mick in Naples, Florida. Hey, Mick, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. This is my first time calling into a radio show, so I'm a little nervous. You're doing great so far, Nick. Thank you. So I listen to a lot of motivational speaking on Pandora, and a lot of those speakers are black motivational speakers. And I've been noticing lately on the algorithm for my black motivational Pandora page or whatever it is, I've been getting a lot of rap music being forced in that's anti-progressive, anti-democratic, where... They're calling out Nancy Pelosi and AOC by name in these songs. And even if oh, I hit the dislike button songs like this, I still get them into my algorithm. They, it may motivation. not be the algorithm. It may be that they, they are promoted, that they are sponsored, that, that uh, you know, the company you're getting your podcast from is being paid to promote them. Well, yeah, it's all through Pandora, you know, so yeah. I assume... I, I don't know. Them, but, uh, I don't know if that's the case and, or not. Pandora's owned by SiriusXM, I, 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 but I don't know anything about the algorithm or how it works. Frankly. Yeah, okay. It was, it was just something that I've been noticing, and I just wanted to throw it out there. I just thought it was kind of weird that it's been happening, especially since I moved down here to Florida. It's been even heavier, so... Oh, that's interesting. It's, I, I wanted to bring up, I thought, yeah. you know. Well, we are seeing, there was there was a report that I saw, I think, yesterday in Politico. It might have been on the Financial Times, but I think it might have been, I'm pretty sure it was Politico, that was talking about how the, uh, the Hispanic vote has shifted about 8% toward the Republican Party in the last four years, and the black vote has shifted around 6 or 7% toward the Republican Party in the last four years. And, you know, the assumption is that the reason for this is media. It's what you're talking about. 
It's that the it's that the message is the Republican message is getting through on a regular basis, and and I you know I didn't realize that they were doing it with rap music, but it, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, it sounds entirely logical. Uh, Mick, I got to run, but thank you for the call and uh, great job on your first on your first call. Call us again. Great to hear from you, Mick. Thank you very much. Uh, before I pick up your phone calls here, I just want to put a punctuation point on if you accept the premise and I do, that the major force that will restrain price increases, in other words, will restrain inflation, is competition, then how do you best accomplish that competition? I see two ways to accomplish this. The first, obviously, is to break up big companies into smaller companies that then compete with each other. And, you know, they, they, they will be facing market forces not to raise prices. In my opinion, the second way to do that is with a windfall profits tax. And this is the thing that very few people understand. I know Bernie's out there talking about it. A number of people in the Progressive Caucus are talking about a windfall profits tax. And I'm all in favor of it, but not for the reason that, that most people think. It's not like, oh, let's punish these companies for price gouging us, or let's go after the oil industry because they've jacked up the price of oil when they don't need to, and it's way beyond what it should be, you know, quack, 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 and it's hurting Joe Biden. Those are all, you know, fine reasons why you should have a windfall profits tax. They, they got a windfall through sneaky, you know, business dealings, essentially, and monopoly. But my argument for a windfall profits tax is that when a company knows that, hey, we can raise our prices 10% and increase our profits by 10% and, uh, you know, nobody's competing with us so we can make a fortune. When a company knows that if they do that, that extra 10% that they're going to squeeze out of the consumers is going to be extracted from them in the form of a windfall profits tax, they don't do it. It's real simple. And also, with regard to wages, as the consequence of a windfall profits tax, in my opinion, and, and you know, I may be wrong on this, but uh, this is me talking, um, is twofold. Number one, it will cause companies to not raise prices because, you know, why bother? It's all going to go to the tax. And number two, what do they do with that leftover money? Now, obviously, many of these big companies are going to shovel as much of it as they can to their stockholders and their, and their senior executives. But they also can expand the product line that they're offering. They can, they can hire new people. They can develop new products. They can put that money into research and development. It becomes a windfall profits tax actually becomes an incentive to companies at, at, at various levels. It's not a primary incentive. It's not anywhere near as efficient as breaking them up into smaller companies. But it becomes an incentive to not only develop new products and be more competitive in the marketplace and make life better for all of us with new and improved products, but also to pay people better because, hey, what else are you going to do with the money? Now, I think that we need to combine that with a high tax rate on capital gains and on, and on CEO pay, so, or on all pay, basically, over 3 or $4 million a year. It should be taxed, in my opinion, at 74 75% at the very least. If you put all those things together, you would have a strong incentive system to keep down wages at the very top and to lift wages at the bottom. And how can I say that with any confidence? Because I lived through that. That was the America from, 19, from the 1940s until the 1980s. 
We had a top tax rate of 91% up until the, 19, until the late 1960s. LBJ dropped it down to 74%, which is where it stayed until Ronald Reagan came into office. And you combine that with the fact that we had a lot of competition back then. You, you, know, you visit any city in America and you see all these local family-owned businesses. And we had a good system that worked. We'll be back with your calls. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So I just, I just want to lay out for you how destructive this Supreme Court could be if this belief that Neil Gorsuch, whose mother tried to, you know, who, who was the head of the EPA for three years and had to resign in disgrace during the Reagan administration, we'll see if the court says this, but I guarantee you there's going to be a case bringing this up. In fact, there already are several that are teed up for it, is that unless... The law, he calls himself a textualist, and he says, you know, you have to follow the text of the law, the black letter text of the law, which, you know, sounds as weird and as, uh, I'm an originalist, I'm, I, we should just follow what the founders intended. Yes, bring back slavery and stop women from voting. I mean, the, the originalists tried that, you know, for a long time and got away with that scam for half of my lifetime anyway, and now it's the textualists. And so what Gorsuch is saying is, uh, well, yeah, the, the uh, Food, and, Food and Drug Administration protected us from E. coli on romaine. Remember the big old romaine lettuce outbreak? How did we get notified of that? It was the Food and Drug Administration, or excuse me, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How about the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration establishing workplace exposure levels to what, what, what killed my dad, asbestos? Well, Neil Gorsuch says that unless the law specifically says the EPA shall regulate this chemical, it doesn't have the authority to regulate that chemical. Unless the, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, unless the legislation creating that agency specifically says you must regulate asbestos in the workplace to a certain level, if it doesn't say that, they can't do that. And here's the problem. Coming up with defining which chemicals need to be regulated, how heavily they need to be regulated, what the consequences 
for, for violating those regulations should be, a, you know, along the sliding scale of it's a really big deal or it's not that big a deal, but it's still something we should be doing something about. All of those are decisions that require enormous amounts of scientific expertise, which legislators don't have. So Congress isn't going to sit around and say, okay, well, let's, here's what we should do. And, and you know, they, they can interview a thousand experts, uh, you know, all day long if they had the time. But then, every, as Ian Milheiser pointed out, every time a new pathogen or, or problem or chemical comes on the market, Congress is supposed to pass a new law. This is what Neil Gorsuch wants, a de completely deregulated America. And this, by the way, is what the Republican Party wants and has been arguing for for a long time. Deregulation. Uh, you know, it's been the mantra of the GOP for years. Lower taxes, less regulation, smaller government. What does that mean? It means more people will die from E. coli. It means more people are going to get asbestos in their lungs and end up with mesothelioma like my dad did. It means that more people are going to, you know, die in car crashes. More, I mean, you just pick the aspect of more people are going to get ripped off by big banks and financial services companies. I mean, you know, on and on it goes. And this term, the court is going to hear a case regarding whether or not the EPA can enforce the Clean Water Act. I'm very concerned about this. This, this is not the American way. All right, let's pick up your phone calls here. Jim in Valley Center, California, listening on the Tom Harbin app. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Yes, uh, Tom, could you fill me in why Rachel Maddow is not on any longer? My understanding, I mean, I, I've just seen the same press reports you have. I don't have any inside information on this, but my understanding is that she, she's moving on to bigger and better things, that she's taking on larger projects. I don't know if that means working on uh, documentaries uh, or what. She, I, I, what I do know about Rachel from the time that we worked together at uh, Free Speech, or excuse me, at uh, Air America, is that she is, she really digs into her topics She's a brilliant researcher. I mean, her show was so unique because of the research that she and her staff would do. And uh, it wasn't just another news show. And I, I, you know, but beyond that, I don't know, Jim. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I don't know any of the details beyond that. Thanks for the call, though. Sonia in uh, Rosanada, New Mexico. Hey, Sonia, what's up? So, thank you. And people in our country conflate the two words, socialism and communism and they are not the same absolutely and um you can have a socialist country that is led by in, in a communist country but it's led then by a dictator a monarch a, a king an oligarch but if we have a socialist democracy which is i am proud to say that's what i think a country should be to take care of everybody, but we the people, we the people have the power to run a social democracy, and we must accept that obligation and that responsibility, and we're I, getting put in a box and in a corner, and it's... Yeah, it's, I, I'm with you, and if you look at the social democracies of Europe and, and uh, Taiwan and South Korea and Japan... And, I mean, there's social democracies all around the world or democratic socialist governments. And if you look at those countries, everybody has a floor to stand on, essentially. You know, healthcare, education, in some cases, even housing and food are, are basically, if, if you, you know, if you need them, they're available to you. And the price 
that the societies pay for that is not a loss of freedom. It's a loss of billionaires. They have fewer morbidly rich people. And because the morbidly rich people are, you know, skimming so much money off the top. So the, and, and so it should surprise absolutely nobody that this whole right wing infrastructure, uh, the media infrastructure, the think tank infrastructure, the state by state infrastructure, the ALEC infrastructure, all of this right wing infrastructure is designed to keep the, in, in the United States to keep the number of billionaires up and the wealth that they have up and keep social democracy down. And I think it's a crime, but I think you, you identified it really, really well, Sonia. Thank you very much for, for doing so. David in Ironwood, Michigan. Hey, David, what's up? Yes, Tom, I was just calling about the Clean Water Act mm -hmm. and how the Republicans, how they're just trying to get rid of that so bad, you know. And I said, you know, and I've always said this, I just don't want to go back to see towns with open sewers anymore. I grew up in a small town that had an open sewer. Mm -hmm. And then when the Clean Water Act came through, you know, they went out and they cleaned all those little towns up, put in lagoons and everything, you know, and, and it made it a lot better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You got water and treatment facilities. I just facilities. don't want to see that. Yeah. What, 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 what do they want to do? Go back to that? Or, you know, where, where you can't go out fishing well, yes, in some and, lake and, and here's the, so poisonous? The, and the libertarian idea is you don't prevent harms. You litigate after the harm. So if, yeah, you know, right. if the kids get, uh, you know, typhoid from hanging around the, the open sewer, let the kids sue. Yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like, right. yeah, after they're dead. I mean, you know, it's the, 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 this whole libertarian logic train, um, which basically yeah. is that everything should be deregulated, is crazy. It's I can remember, see, I remember hearing this uh, splashing in the sewer one time when I was about 10 years old and I looked. I thought it was a dog down there, and it was a rat about 12, 12 inches long running in the sewer. There you go. That was really nice. Yeah, <laughs> David, thank you. Thank you. you. You made my point perfectly. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know. I'll be right back. Today we're reading from Ralph Nader's new book, How the Rats Reformed the Congress, a fable. It's fiction. Chapter 1, Invader. It was one of those uncomfortable morning strategy sessions with his senior staff. For House Speaker Reginald Blamer, the discomfort was in having to figure ways to continue blocking a long overdue raise in the federal minimum wage for many millions of low-income workers when he knew in his gut it was not the right thing to do. We're in the crosshairs, he would say, starting such congressional meetings in his spacious office. Not that his anxiety would cause him to renege on the implicit promise he had made to the big boys to stop the moving Congress to raise the minimum. But there was still background anxiety. After all, politicians are only human, and like many, Speaker Blamer came from a large family that had lived through tightened circumstances. His father was a tavern keeper and his mother a seamstress. Deep anxiety, however, did have one inherent comfort at such morning gatherings. It tended to work in mysterious ways to overcome his morning constipation, the constant bane of the Speaker's existence. Holding down 30 million workers, including among them many conservative voters who, when adjusted for inflation, were making less today than workers in 1968, bothered the very private, self-censored, psychosomatic recesses of the Speaker's conscience. And so, not surprisingly, Speaker Blamer felt the onset of a solid bowel movement. He excused himself and repaired to his large private bathroom. As he sat down in the broad porcelain, the Speaker heard a sound inside the toilet. Lifting himself up a bit, he looked down and saw the head of a mostly submerged black rat closely eyeing his bottom. Yow, 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 bellowed the speaker as he straightened up and slammed the cover down. 
Alarmed, the staff rushed to the bathroom door to respectfully call, Speaker Blamer, are you all right? Do you need help? They dared not open the door. The speaker did not tolerate any exposure of his privacy, especially being seen in his corpulent native suit. Another more normal person might have replied, yeah, I'm okay, it's just that there's a rat in the toilet bowl. But Speaker Blamer was not a normal person. He has had to be super cunning to get to his present situation in life. Being cunning means that you can instantly sense danger, being as alert as, say, a rat. And Speaker Blamer was already imagining the deriding headlines in the late night show jokes if he disclosed what really prompted his impulsive cries of sheer terror as he leapt from the throne. So he replied, nothing much, boys, just one of those sudden spasms I get once in a while. Sure comes on fast, it goes away fast, too. I'll be right out. Rejoining the staff at the head of the conference table, albeit full of gas and undischarged wastes, the speaker went through the checklist for crushing the hopes of the downtrodden multitudes. His chief of staff reviewed the usual elements of the campaign against workers. First off, the speaker will say, I always thought that if you raise the price of anything, you get less of it. The proposal to raise the minimum wage is a job killer. Good soundbite, said his research assistant. Speaker nodded gravely, though when he heard the word bite, he silently winced. The operations assistant counted off the usual reliable economics professors who could supply objective warnings about losses of jobs and recession. The fast food and big box retailer association had begun a large ad buy on television and radio with the announcer's stentorian voices of dire gravity. The K Street lobbyists were already in action on Capitol Hill, marshalling the corporate PACs to make sure this drive was on the front burner hinting to legislators that their employers might see this as a litmus test for their donations. Op-eds, letters to the editors, and editorial condemnation of economically disruptive higher wages and layoffs was already in the pipeline. About to burst, the speaker could not wait to end the meeting. Okay, fellows, you seem to have the situation well in hand. It's not the first time we had to fight off this wage grab. Get to work. They all scattered, including an irrelevant intern who wondered to herself whether paying members of Congress more would mean the government would end up with less of them. The moment the door to his spacious office closed, the speaker literally lunged to his private toilet. Before he could enjoy a moment of quiet satisfaction, a shrill shriek lifted him up as his eyes bulged. It was the black rat swimming in the bowl, propelling the terrified cry, yow, yow, yow. Again, he slammed down the toilet seat. His longtime secretary heard his yell and rushed to his bathroom. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, what happened? Are you okay? Recovering his composure, he replied, I'm okay, Sarah, just more of those sudden spasms. I've got to get some physical therapy. By the way, did you schedule that fundraiser next week for an hour later? Yes, I did, Mr. Speaker, Sarah replied, sounding very relieved. Arriving home that early evening, he sat down to a healthy diet supper prepared by his adoring wife, Regina. Their three children were grown up living in distant states, so they were empty nesters. You seem unusually agitated, honey, said Regina. Did you have a hard day? It seems every day is hard in these times, he replied, shrugging off her concern. What a great meal always, Regina. Now I need some relaxing reading. Do you know where we put that colorful book of animals that we got as a wedding anniversary gift years ago? Why, yes, Reginald. It came in three volumes, mammals, reptiles, and insects. Tell me which one you want, and I'll get it for you. Mammals, he replied. Sitting in his study, the speaker started reading about the rat. The word rat is derived from the Latin rodere, which means to gnaw. Rats produce litter several times a year with high infant mortality. If seen as weak, newborns are eaten by their parents and their stronger siblings. Over the centuries, rats have developed uncanny abilities to survive dangers everywhere, especially those produced by their close proximity to humans, whose detritus and garbage ironically provide the means by which they prosper and create new nests. Rats live everywhere, underground, in sewers, in buildings, etc. From Ralph Nader's new book, How the Rats Reformed the Congress, a fable.
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. It's the Tom Hartman program. And on the line with us right now is Dave Levitan. Dave is a climate reporter with Grid.News, a science journalist, the author of the book, Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science. You can find that over his website, Dave Levitan, L-E-V-I-T-A-N.com. And uh, Dave Levitan is also his, his Twitter handle, no surprise. Dave, welcome to the program. And thanks, thanks so much, very for, much for having me. My pleasure. So first of all, the takeaways from the UNIPCC, you know, the, the big climate change group for the United Nations is looking into how we've, you know, the state of the world, as it were, is uh, preparing, I believe, their sixth big presentation. And we're getting some reports out about what's, you know, particularly about methane was the one that I saw. You want to bring us up to date on the IPCC? Sure. So, uh, yeah, they, they released their latest report uh, this this Monday, actually, uh, as part of, as you said, their big sixth assessment report, which takes the better part of a year to release all of it. But uh, the latest was about what they call mitigation pathways, the, the ways that we actually could uh, mitigate climate change, fix it. And it is, as you might expect, pretty dire. Uh, they basically said we have to peak global emissions by 2025, which really is very soon, considering that emissions continue to rise. So that was sort of the big take home message, I think, but there's plenty more in there. And yes, as you said, today there was some news about methane concentrations uh, having gone up a record amount last year, uh, beating the previous year's record. So not great in that realm either. Right, and an awful lot of that is uh, the off-gassing from wells that have been abandoned. These companies, they they uh, pump the oil out, they take the money to the bank, and then they, uh, you know, and then they bankrupt the company. So there's no liability can go back on them. And then you've got these old wells that are leaking methane, um, hundreds of millions of, of pounds a year, I believe. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's a lot of uh, sort of um, rogue emissions, basically, from, from pipelines, from you know, previously used wells, from all sorts of facilities like that. There's also other sources of methane, like agriculture in particular is a big one. Um, as well as just land use change as well can can release a lot of methane. But yeah, the uh, oil and gas industry certainly um, represents a big source, and it also represents a pretty big opportunity because it's not particularly difficult to close some of those leaks if if right. you actually have the motivation to do so. Amen. We're talking with Dave Levitan, the climate reporter with Grid News. Uh, Dave, tell us about solar geoengineering. Sure. So solar geoengineering is an idea that would basically sort of artificially cool the planet briefly uh, or, you know, ongoing as we try to reduce emissions. I want to stress this is not happening yet. Some people, there are conspiracy theorists out there who think that it is. It is not. But it is an idea that is under discussion uh, because we are, you know, sort of failing in the, the efforts to actually reduce emissions. Um, and the, the concept is basically that you would uh, bring a bunch of planes high up into the stratosphere and dump small particles. Sulfate aerosols is the most commonly cited one. So very small bits of sulfur, basically, 
that reflect sunlight back into space. So it reduces the total amount of sunlight that hits the Earth, and this could probably cool the planet. So that's the, the basic premise there. Isn't there, I, I mean, there, there have to be dangers and consequences associated with that. And not just, you know, sulfur raining down out of the sky, you know, presumably forming sulfur dioxide at those, at those atmospheric levels uh, after we finally got control of sulfur dioxide. But also, I mean, if you're cooling one region and not another, aren't you running the risk of like messing with ocean currents or the jet stream? So, yeah, there are definitely some risks in that regard. Um, the part of the problem with this is that research has been pretty slow to, to sort of get going. So there's still a lot of open questions. But we do know that there would be basically sort of winners and losers with this. There would be, you know, some regions might improve, like, you know, the, uh, uh, say, crop yields would be better in certain regions, but they might be worse in others. So there are definitely winners and losers. There's some hints that it could alter, you know, monsoon patterns in Southeast Asia, which, of course, is a big deal for uh, the livelihoods of the people who live there. Um, it could change um, some of the, the crop patterns and precipitation patterns in sub-Saharan Africa as well. But really, the, the, the main take home here is that we need to do a lot more research on this. There's just not an answer to all of these various questions. There's, it's yeah. growing, but there's still a lot of holes in the research. Yeah, it seems to me that, that probably focusing on stopping emissions as quickly as possible, number one. And number two, uh, carbon capture technology, which up to this point has been mostly a PR scam for the fossil fuel industry, um, you know, most of the projects. Although Iceland's got one that's powered by geothermal that, that looks like it might be interesting. But it seems to me like those would be the two areas to focus on first. Yeah, absolutely. I think e even the people doing the work on solar geoengineering, geo excuse me, geoengineering say that the, the more central project is absolutely reducing emissions as quickly as possible. I think that's sort of universally agreed upon. And yeah, carbon capture would be wonderful if it worked. It has not, you know, as you said, it hasn't quite made it to prime time yet. Um, the, the project in Iceland is interesting. Yeah, it's it's pulling CO2 directly out of the sky, basically, which we do need to do a lot more of. And, and since you mentioned the IPCC, they actually, that most recent report specifically said that that kind of work, carbon dioxide removal or CDR, is going to be necessary in order to actually really achieve what we're trying to achieve. So that definitely needs to be scaled up in a big way and made a lot cheaper, because right now it's it's very expensive. Right, yeah, I, I, I visited, uh, we were making a, a movie, uh, Ice on Fire, and we visited uh, a, a big uh, facility in Germany where they were doing a demonstration project on it, and they were like nowhere near close to to the, the, the that tipping point of, t of efficiency where you're actually drawing more carbon out of the atmosphere than you're generating for the atmosphere to produce the power to drive the system that's drawing it back out again. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's just very, very problematic. Dave Levitan is the climate reporter with Grid.News, a science journalist and author of the book, Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science. And you can read his writing also over at Grid.News. You can reach him on Twitter at Dave Levitan and uh, DaveLevitan.com. Dave, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good talking with you. And uh, welcome back. Picking up your phone calls. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Yeah, it occurred to me, you know, again, I can't stress enough how there are a number of electric cars on the market right now people can buy i know somebody who just put in their order 
for uh, one of them. Uh, it's the car that starts with an L. I can't remember the name. My girlfriend just got a uh, Cooper. The range isn't all that great, but she doesn't drive all that much. A lot of families have two cars. You know that. Mm. Why can't one be electric? Why can't one be gasoline for longer distances? That's the solution. Yeah. We've got to go electric, and we've got to go quicker than what is planned. And we have to fight against these oil companies. I wish some of these Democrats would start saying, you don't like gasoline prices? Buy an electric car. They're on the market. They're out there. All you got to do is look online. You can find all sorts of electric cars that are available. People need to get out of their gasoline guzzlers and start buying electric cars. Right. And let me give you a half way to fight big oil. Right. And let me give you a half point, which is what Louise and I did five years ago when we bought our last car. We bought a Toyota Prius plug-in hybrid, and we plug Mm -hmm. it in. Um, it, 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 It we get about 30 miles on a charge, and then it's got a gas engine and a tank of gasoline. In the five years, and I think it's been, uh, when did we move here, Sean? We've been here five years, right? Yeah, okay, so in the five years we've, we've been here in Portland, um, I have used either three or four tanks of gasoline. I don't recall whether I bought a fourth well. tank or not, but in five years. And that was because we wanted to drive to the seacoast and uh, a couple of times you know, before the pandemic when the weather was nice and you know, just do some sightseeing around the state. And there's not that much good electric recharging infrastructure. And so you know, I'd burn a, a, a tank of gas. But um, I can drive anywhere in Portland. I mean, from here to downtown is only eight miles from, from my house to the, to the center of the city. I, you know, I can drive anywhere I want and 100% on electricity. In fact, uh, last weekend, Louise and I took a drive just to get out of the house to stop, you know, going stir crazy. And uh, there was no way, you know, that we were going to use up all the electricity. But I, I still pushed the button and turned the elect- electric motor on for about three or four minutes on the highway because, you know, electric cars only have basically one moving part. I mean, outside of the steering mechanisms and braking mechanisms. Um, and that's like the motor, right, that the drives it. Some have one motor, some the have two train. motors. Yeah, and, and, and well, the drivetrain is very simple. The motor is directly attached to the wheel. You know? Exactly. And you don't have to go through a transmission because the electric motors have torque like you wouldn't believe, which is why they take off like rockets. I mean, it's just it'll push you right back in your seat when you stop on the gas, gas pedal on an electric car or on a, a hybrid gas electric that's running in electric mode. I can't get that kind of pickup when I'm in, in gasoline mode. And, and so, you know, if you have any anxiety about it, do that. But that's like the most expensive way to do it, because I not only paid for a gasoline motor, which probably has, you know, 300 parts in it, uh, you know, a number of which need to be replaced and they wear out and you know, pistons and piston rings and, and valve heads and valves and uh, spark plugs and distributors and oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, electronic ignition system and you know, quack, 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 an exhaust system and, and catalytic converters and, and mufflers. And you got none of that in an electric car. You've got a battery, a motor, and a little electronic module that controls them. Your gas pedal is just a, like, a, like a volume control. You know, it's just a potentiometer. And, and well, here's another, there's so much cheaper here's to make. Another thing, Tom. Here's another thing, Tom. NPR, I heard the other day, a factory is being built in Georgia. And um, they're, they're going to take lithium-ion batteries from cars mm. that are worn out. And they're going to reprocess them. Uh, and they're going to have a range now between 30 and 50 years. Oh yeah, they're they're very. It's it's the, the process of recycling 
nickel cadmium batteries are a little harder to recycle. The, the lithium ion ones are really easy to recycle. And of course, your regular you know, uh, disposable batteries are fairly hard to recycle, expensive and dirty. But yeah, spot on, Dennis, spot on. Thank you very much. Josh in Miami, Florida. Hey, Josh, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Good. What's on your mind? Good. Well, I was thinking about the Supreme Court, and I was wondering, is it better to think about it as unpacking the court? And, yeah. And think about this as, you know, because they have the high ground in the argument, it seems like, and there's no way that they should. I agree. Um, you know, Tom, agree. Thomas should be impeached, investigate Kennedy in that whole situation. I mean, Kavanaugh. Yep. And, and yeah, and the, the, we never saw, you know, we only saw fewer than 1% of all of Kavanaugh's papers from the time that he was in the Bush, uh, Bush Justice Department and, and presumably advising Bush on torture uh, policies and issues. Um, you know, we don't know who paid off his credit cards. I mean, there's a lot of questions about Kavanaugh. And uh, you know, fifteen hundred uh, reports to the FBI on that guy. Yeah, and you've got and you've got uh, you know uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who had never been a judge. I mean, you know, be, be, before I, she she was just put on the court, she'd never she as a as a lawyer, she had never tried a case. I mean, it was just it's breathtaking um, how Disgusting. unqualified she is. So yeah, I'm with you. I think that we should unpack the court rather than pack there. And of course, you know, holding up Merrick Garland, who should be on the court. Um, I'm I'm with you on all those things, Josh. Um, what about some oversight? Can the Congress do anything about oversight for the Supreme Court? It's debatable. There are people who say no. I published a piece a couple of weeks ago saying yes, they can. That Article Three, Section Two of the Constitution that says that that, con that the Supreme Court shall be regulated by Congress um, mm -hmm. includes the ability of Congress to impose a code of ethics on the court. I, I published mm -hmm. that, and on Twitter, I, I just got jumped all over by a, a, a lawyer that I respect who was saying, no, no, you can't do that, no way. Um, I disagree, and one of these days I'm gonna write another piece kind of pushing back on the pushing back, so, because yeah. you know, John Roberts, when he was in the Reagan White House, spent a year putting together a paper, a 27-page paper for the Reagan White House about how Congress could overturn Roe v. Wade and Brown versus Board of Education, which were the two big cases that the Reagan, you know, Reagan wanted to overturn, um, that they could do that based on that Article Three, Section Two of the of the U.S. Constitution assertion of the right of or power of Congress to regulate the United States Supreme Court. So, if they could do that in John Roberts' mind, then at the very least they could impose a conduct, a code of judicial conduct, but. Um, just the the the, the uh, Clarence Thomas stuff. I, I'm I'm watching this just vanish from the from the TV screens now. And you know Thomas's Thomas and his wife are sitting around going, "Well, we just had to hold our breath for a week or two and just let the news cycle move along." And thank God for the war in Ukraine. And um, you know, and 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 I don't think we should be letting go of this. I think that we need to be focusing on on you know how corrupt is the Supreme Court now? Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, whose father was a Shell lawyer, if I'm recalling correctly, or a lawyer for the fossil fuel industry for decades, uh, ruling on fossil fuel uh, things. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, his mother, Gorsuch's you know, had to mother. resign from the EPA in disgrace after three years running it under the Reagan administration because she was basically trying to destroy it. And and he's weighing in on the EPA now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's nuts. Josh, I got to run, but thank you for the call. I, yeah, I think your points are very, very well taken.
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. The candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having, to that extent, practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech, explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use. And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also, whether there can be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of. It decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980, with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada. And 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. 
In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review? And how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the court sided with popular opinion? And how have people successfully challenged the court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the president with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. Tom Hartman here with you and Rudy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Rudy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, you know, I was thinking, um, I hear a lot of people saying about our A.G. Garland. Mm -hmm. I think we couldn't have gotten the best person for the time that we're in right now. When you really sit back and look at uh, Obama choosing him and the reason why Obama chose him, one of the sticking points with uh, Obama, he said this guy is meticulous. Yeah. Now, that being said, and what really gives me hope when I really stand back and look at it is how aggressively the uh, Biden administration wrapped up the NATO nations to be in a position to where Ukraine is able to do what they're doing. You're absolutely right. So this was, you, And they're getting no credit for it. But the Biden administration, right. Anthony Blinken and President Biden himself, and, and I believe Kamala Harris was involved in this process as well, yeah. they reached out to dozens of countries. They pulled this coalition together. They, they've strengthened NATO. They're, they're helping Ukraine defend itself, but they're also helping coordinate the shipment into Ukraine of weapon systems from other countries, particularly the countries in the former, uh, the, the former Soviet countries that have you know, old Russian weapon systems that the Ukrainians had been trained on. And the Ukrainians would not be able to successfully defend Ukraine right no. now were it not for Joe Biden putting that effort in. I mean, he did a, this was a masterpiece of international exactly. diplomacy. That's being underreported. And that being said, that gives me the most hope because when the gauntlet comes down with Mayor Garland, it's going to be swift. We have no other choice but to investigate. Yeah. We have no other choice but to, to levy the law against these people that are down with this Trump-Putin situation. So, Tom, I really feel good about it. The question is, is how far up the food chain you want to go. Yeah. 
what is it, about a month ago, Garland came out and gave that little speech where he said, we will go wherever the facts lead us. Exactly. And I'm with you, Rudy. I think that that's, that's really, really good news. Rudy, thanks a lot for the call. By the way, I, you know, we just did a, a piece on climate change, and I wanted to share with you this. I, I find this just mind-boggling. This is a story out of CNN by Rachel Ramirez. The headline is, This incredibly potent global warming gas just sent another, set another record for the second year in a row. And they're talking, of course, about methane. Methane is the compound that we've made a series of little web videos about that you can find. Uh, they all live on YouTube. Just plug my name in and last hours and they'll pop right up. You know, methane is 80 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And methane, by the way, degrades, you know, in the atmosphere, it breaks down. And what it breaks down to is carbon dioxide. Because, you know, methane is also a carbohydrate, as it were. It's, it's carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And so it breaks down into carbon dioxide and water vapor as it, as, it, as it deteriorates. So when you put methane into the atmosphere, you're putting something that's 80 times more potent as a greenhouse gas initially. And over, I, I believe it's around a 28-year half-life for methane. So over the next 40 or 50 years, it's slowly just breaking down. But it's breaking down to carbon dioxide, which is also a greenhouse gas. And last year, uh, 2021, was the, it was the largest contributor, the second largest contributor to climate change, the first obviously being carbon dioxide. But the increase in the atmospheric levels of methane are higher than they've been at any time in history, in known human history. In fact, they're higher than they have been in 800,000 years of the history of our planet, before humans were even walking around like humans which appears to have happened around 250 to 300,000 years ago. And where is this methane coming from? It is mostly coming from oil and gas operations. And many of them abandoned oil and gas operations. And this is just absolutely criminal that we are allowing these companies to, to, to go in and drill our oil and gas out of our soil and walk away with the, with the, the cash from it and we're not asking these companies, you know, when they say, okay, we're, we'll, this morning NPR was talking about there's 9,000 permits and thousands of leases that the oil and gas companies are not using right now. And Joe Biden is saying, hey, you know, get, get the price of gasoline down, you know, get some of this stuff out of the ground. Okay, great. But they're, they're, at the time that they exercise that lease, in my opinion, they should be forced to put up a bond. We're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the tune of six hundred million dollars a year just in the United States. It's five trillion dollars worldwide. Why are we offering six hundred billion, excuse me, six hundred, it was six hundred billion dollars. If I said million, it's six hundred. Why are we giving the fossil fuel industry over six hundred billion dollars worth of subsidies every year? This just, you know, it has me scratching my head. I don't, I don't get it. Anyhow, Murad in uh, Independence, Missouri. Murad. Murad. So what's up, Murad? Uh, all right, Tom. I, I listen to your show off and on through the years. First with the election, the campaign with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So how proud I am of where we are at this moment regarding our new Supreme Court justice and how ridiculous and how just 
right there in front of you behavior of Republicans. You know, you know the people who went before her, most recently the nominees that went before her, who actually became justices, were so grossly unqualified. Yep. I mean, it's plain to see. Yep. No, she's probably the most qualified person on that bench. I mean, she's the only person who's ever actually defended a criminal case, which is just breathtaking when you think about it. Yes. And then the way that they went after her, we understand the why. What doesn't make any sense is their behavior in light of Justice Thomas's behavior. Well, Murad, they were not, during those Senate hearings, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, those Republicans, particularly Tom Cotton and Marsha Blackburn and Ted Cruz, those Republicans were not actually digging into, I mean, it wasn't about her record. What it was about was that Republicans all across the country are running on a campaign platform in, in in the election that's coming up in, what, six, seven months. They're running on a platform of arguing that Demo- it's their, their so-called culture wars, right? right. They're, they're accusing Democrats of being soft on sexual criminals. And that's the problem. You get somebody who's trying to talk about, hey, you know, we need to raise the minimum wage. And then somebody over on the other side yells, hey, there's ha- somebody's having sex over here. And everybody looks, right? I mean, it's like right. you can't look away when people start talking about sex. It's wired into us. And so that's yeah. what they're doing. They're trying to characterize Democrats in, in a negative way, and they're going after gays, they're going after lesbians, they're going after trans people. And that was what they were doing in those hearings, and they were setting up the elections. It had very little to do with her. But Murad, I'm with you. I am, I am so proud of this party and, and frankly, three good Republicans. I never thought I'd say that phrase, good Republicans, but, you know, God bless them. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney. There may be some some small semblance of hope for the Republican Party. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 